time. Thank you for an opportunity to open up your word. And I pray, Lord, as we we would see um, the danger of false teachers and the ways in which we can be manipulated, but also, Lord, that you want the you want our our lives to matter for kingdom work and not just work here on earth. Um, I pray, Lord, we would see that and it would be a motivation for us to do some self-reflection that we can live our lives serving you more than anything else. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read it, and then we will break it down. 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's kind of considered to be, I guess, but... Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is and nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of all kinds of evil, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So he's talking about false teachers, and he's talking about contentment, being content in what we have from the Lord. Um, he's giving some symptoms or some things that are that wreck your faith. Um, he talks about false teachers, about taking care of the poor, about uh, the man of God is kind of a man that's not chasing after wealth, and then talks about Timothy himself a little bit. We start with... If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Pretty bold statement. That if you do not agree with the sound words of Jesus and the teachings that accord with godliness, then you are essentially ignorant and arrogant. When you look up conceit and understands nothing, he's saying if you go against the sound teachings of the Word of God, you're a dummy. And then he's going to get into other things real fast. But there's, this isn't blind faith. This isn't just accepting every time that someone says something coming alongside. This is, we run everything through the lens of Scripture. We run everything through the Bible. And if anyone comes along and starts saying things that go contrary to the Bible, contrary to the Word of God, you don't immediately go, huh, that guy or gal is really smart. And I've, I've read this book three or four times. I never saw that in there. And it doesn't, it doesn't jive with what I see in here, but they're really smart, so I'm just going to believe them over what's right in front of my face or what's right here. And I, I've had several conversations over the last uh, couple months with various people, and there's almost like this collective... I feel like there's this collective lack of critical thinking is hitting our society where it's just blind following of someone has a platform or has a social media page or because they have a title or they've been elected or they have a business or then we just go, yeah, well, look, they've done that. They Look, I'm gonna f-. instead of saying, hey, that's an interesting idea. I've never heard that before. 
I'm going to dig into that myself. And I'm going to do the hard work of some study, the hard work of research, the hard work of looking into it, and then I'm going to take it to the Lord. And I'm going to pray about it. And I'm going to ask the Spirit to guide me along this journey because it can't just be intellectual. Then it's just, you're just weighing options. So we pray and we ask the Spirit to guide us and can you point me to the right way, the right person, the right... That's how we function. That's how we all function. That's how we should all function. That if you believe something or something was given to you and imparted to you as a, early in your faith or last week in your faith and you, you see it, you feel it, you know it and then someone comes along and says, hey, have you ever thought about this? Like, well, I haven't. I, maybe I should take a look at that. Maybe I should. But I'm not just going to believe it because they had a title or an audience or being used to, you would say, well, gosh, they're on TV. They must be smart. Right? If they were, whether it's Walter Cronkite or whomever, or like you've, you're, they're on TV. And now it's, well, gosh, they have a web page. They've got a YouTube channel. They must. The same thing was happening all the way back in the first part of the church growing. There were people coming into this church in Ephesus. It's a brand new way of thinking. They're, they're revolutionizing these communities. They're coming along saying, you know, the Jewish way that's had existed for thousands of years is not the way. This is the way. It's Jesus Christ. It's Gentiles are coming in. All this people. And so there's Timothy teaching the Word of God and there's people coming from all over. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And you have to have the capacity with the truth. It has to jive with what we're seeing here. These teachers were clearly in some kind of a attempt for their own gain. They're trying to do this for their own gain. Now you have from Socrates and from the Greeks and in this area, there was a culture of the sophists, the paid teachers, the paid intellectuals. And so you would have somebody very intelligent, um, Plato was one, Aristotle was one, Socrates, and so you were paid to teach people. You'd pay to have a private person come in and teach your children, and you would pay them lots of money, and so these sophists, these paid teachers, were vested in their way being the way because they, that's how they got paid. And so we'll, we see this mentioned later on, that these teachers are clearly coming into this culture. They're coming into this church, and they're coming in to say, well, I'm the smart one. I get paid to do this for a living. I get paid to, this is what I do. And so when you do it just out of gain, just out of financial gain, just out of a, a desire for fame, it becomes very dangerous. And so Paul's warning Timothy, Anybody that comes in and says, hey, I know that you've believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for most But have you ever thought that maybe it was a magic trick? That maybe Jesus didn't really die? And that when he got up and walked around, that it was after they took him off the cross that day, they didn't break his legs, it was all part of a conspiracy, it's a trick? that he wasn't really in the tomb, they just stuck in something else, they did something different, and then he was around for 40 days just telling it and whipping this all into a frenzy, and then he just moved on to France. Where he then had a child, and they became the Merovingians, and they, right, is that straight out of Da Vinci Code, or essentially paraphrasing? 
And so you hear that, and you're like, what? I don't, can I, I don't know. That sounds, that's so strange. That's not what I've been taught. That's not what the history books say. That's not what the record, I, I just, I don't, man. But because a book is made, written, because a movie's made, because, well, gosh, we have to. And if you pay attention, as a critical thinking person, Dan Brown got sued in European court for writing the Da Vinci Code because he stole the whole story from a couple of French professors that wrote Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And when he goes to court, he didn't steal it. He, he created a fiction piece based upon the facts, and he gave them no credit. Don't sue me, Dan Brown. You have more money than me. And he goes to court, and he, his, his defense was, it's fiction. It's fiction. I, I, I made it up. But then the entire world was going crazy for a while. It's a piece of fiction. Read the fiction. Like, I didn't read the book. I watched the movie. It was kind of intriguing. It wasn't quite as good as Jason Bourne, but it was fun. <laughs> but there was a whole army of people that wouldn't even think critically through it. Let's ban this, do this, all this. And if you just think a little critically and go, hey, it's a piece of fiction. Read fiction. There's a lot of fiction out there. It's reasons called fiction. But there was an army of pastors that were saying, get rid of this book. No one should ever, what, weren't there? But it's fiction. So if you came at it with a critical thinking argument and said, well, let's look at the Bible. Let's look at this piece of fiction. Let's put these two together. And what do we come up with? Great story. Terrible historical premise. The historians were proven wrong over and over again in their book. The Bible's true. We can get there. But instead, you have people coming in that are puffed up. You know these people. I've been to school. I have degrees. I have initials. I have, I've done it. I've been there. I've spoken to thousands of people. I have a jet car limo. I have it all. I've got great sneakers. I've got whatever. And so, believe me. Trust me. And Paul's saying, beware of these people. An unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words that produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people, who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a mere means of gain. This has kind of been magnified tenfold in the last part of our culture, where if these guys a couple thousand years ago were coming in with controversy, they just loved to stir the pot for no reason. I have a little bit of that in me, too. Okay, i got a lot of that in me. But they're doing it for gain. They're doing it to come in, to have these quarrels, to cause dissension, to bring trouble in, and then they get to be, I, my assumption here, given what we have here, is they want to they stir up trouble and then come in with the answers. That you cause a fight, you cause dissension in the church, you split the church, you get people to whisper and talk about things that are kind of out there, that are kind of not really things to just grab a hold of, and then these guys, these false teachers, get to be the hero. I got all the answer. All you have to do is turn on any cable news network and watch it happen. You watch the theater of it all. Or even our leaders... You turn on C-SPAN and you watch a speech coming out of the Senate or the Congress, and then if you ever watch, if you watch long enough, the cameraman will mess up, and you'll get a panned view that there's not a single person in that room listening to that speech. 
It's a person that's standing on a podium with a, getting a sound bite, stirring up things, passionate. We're going, oh, we shouldn't, you, you're wrong. And, and then you pan the crowd and there's not a single person in the room. Like, well, what are you doing? You're getting pretty angry at no one. You're stirring up trouble. You watch it. How many of you remember when Jerry Springer first came to television? Do you remember there for a while when the Oprah Winfrey show started looking like Jerry Springer a little bit? There was a couple of fights on Oprah's show too. Do you remember the famous Geraldo Rivera getting a chair thrown at him too? All these things were happening where people were just, they were setting up fights on television. And it wasn't even good fights like the UFC. It was terrible fights. And then you whip these people into a frenzy. And then now it's, we're part of the same cycle. Let's get everyone angry. Let's sow dissension. Let's, so you can't even have a conversation anymore. Hey, I disagree with you, but let's, have, let's talk about it. We immediately demonize and you're evil and you disagree on something theologically. Well, the correct, critical thinking, logical, Bible-believing, God-loving, Jesus-honoring way is to say, well, I, I don't see that. Can we get together and read it together? Can we study the scriptures a little bit together? If we get stuck, can we maybe go find a commentary or can we talk to somebody, grab an elder, grab somebody else, and just maybe give some insight, but I'm not just going to believe it because it was on YouTube or I'm not going to believe it because somebody was mad about it. Let's, let's look at this. Let's figure this out. But instead, we're in such conflict mode where we're just going to fight and fight and disagree. It's good for no one. It's good for no one. That's why I'm trying to teach my kids in the world of snap to face chat gram, whatever, all the stuff that's out there. Like if someone has a problem with you or so you hear about something, you go talk to them directly. Oh, I don't want to, I don't know. No, you go talk to them. If you don't like it, then you go talk to them. And if you're not going to talk to them about it, then you need to be quiet about it because it doesn't matter enough to you because you won't go talk to the person. Well, they're saying, then you go address it. You deal with the situation. You don't just get mad about silly stuff online. And Paul is trying to talk about these communities ripping apart. Someone's coming in and sowing dissension amongst the church. There's no critical thinking. They're believing in so-called experts, and they're afraid to walk in that tension. And it's going to blow the church up. It can destroy a church. And so Paul's warning Timothy. As an example, one of the things that's... I'll, zoom, I'll blow it up for you. <laughs> well, I can't trust the translations of the... I can't trust the Bible because it went from one language to the next and did this, did this, did this. How can we trust that this is really the Word of God? How can we trust this? It's different. It's the telephone game. It's all been changed. You have no idea. And that's, that's a lack of critical thinking because the research is right in front of you. We know, historically, that these are the number of copies we have of some of the major Greek and Roman literature. Between Homer and Caesar writing on the Gallic Wars, or Plato and Herodotus and Tacitus, we have all, like, this is, this is the number of copies we have of this. And we know that it was written in 1000 B.C., but the earliest copy we have was from 800 A.D., so there's 200 years between the writing. So it's 200 years for there to be some potential funny business. 
We have Homer, written 800 B.C. The earliest manuscript is 400 B.C. And so there's 400 years for some funny business. We have Herodotus, Plato, taught at every campus that's going to study Greek a little bit, do a little political science. Every poli-sci person reads Plato. Written in 400 B.C., the earliest manuscript is from 895 A.D. Almost 1,000 years separates. More than that. 1,400 years. Separates. And this is the number of manuscripts we have. 210 manuscripts separated. Okay? You go to the New Testament, written between 50 and 100 A.D. The earliest manuscript is from 130 A.D. So, we'll just split it. We'll say 70 years in between. And we have 23,000 manuscripts written across multiple languages. We have them as early as the Gothic all the way through up into Latin copies. 23,000 known copies of the New Testament manuscripts. So just based upon historical proof, the New Testament is more reliable than all of Greek and Roman political thought. And you tell people about translations. When the translators go to translate the New Testament into the ESV or the NIV, they don't go to what was written 10 years ago. They go back to the original manuscripts. So to say that you can't trust the Bible because who knows what happened, how it was written, you're wrong. You're just factually wrong. And if you're going to have that approach, you need to throw out all of Western civilization's foundation. We're not going to do that. That doesn't, if you, if someone throws those things at you, just do a little bit of Googling. And you can find some stuff. And you can go, that's not accurate. That's not true. Well, you can't trust the Bible because it was written by a bunch of old men and they wrote it in Latin and they translated it to German and they translate to English. Went through four translations. All the words have changed. Actually, they went back to the original source languages and that's what they did. Oh, I didn't know that. Have the conversation. But you will get somebody that's a deceitful, false teacher, false witness, tries to come in and spread false truth. It's dangerous. We have to stand against it. He continues, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. He's in shifts. He's talking about false teachers, sophists, paid teachers, who are doing it for gain, who are coming into the church, trying to split the church, mess with the church for gain, and then he shifts to materialism. That's why when you have a Bible that has all the, the titles, mine says, false teachers and true contentment. So there's a dual thing happening here. Then he begins to talk about our contentment. And he says, the godliness with contentment is a great game. Like, are you so desperate for the stuff? Materialism. And he's connecting these false teachers, saying they're out of their pockets. They're trying to be taken care of well. They're trying to get a bigger house. They're trying to get better stuff. That's what they're doing this for. Be careful about false teachers and people that are just after the money. Be careful. Are you content? And he gives us an example. We brought nothing into this world and we can't take anything out of this world. You've heard people say that. Well, I can't take it with me when I'm gone. I got lots of toys, but I can't take it with me when I'm gone. And we even know that by generational... 
Like you, if you pass on a great war chest into your family, unless you do it in a trust and do it wise, like they'll, they're going to spend all your money. It's going to be gone in like two or three generations. So maybe invest in time and relationship and those things instead of, what's, what's Warren Buffett say? The, is it Warren Buffett? The quote where uh, he got his money the old-fashioned way, he inherited it. I think it was Warren Buffett, wasn't it? And he was kind of picking on the elites, and he was saying, come invest with me. It could have been someone else, but anyway. God saying, we need to be content with what take it with us. And then he takes it one step farther. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. He's not saying you can't have a retirement account. He's not saying you can't have money. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you have a, an obsession with money, and I think it's deeper than that. If you have an obsession with life in this world, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. That you should have an obsession for eternity. You should have you're gone. You should have an obsession for riches and not just what is here. Now he's tying this to the sophists and he's tying it to this church and this church is hearing this and he's not saying that you can't have money in the bank. He's not saying that you can't have great wealth. But it can't be the driving force of your soul. That all I want is to have that all I want is the next thing. All I want is the bigger, the better, the... He's saying, are you content with what you have? And if we're honest, we are all victims of that lack of content. We all are. You wouldn't have marketing departments of companies if it didn't prey upon the broken need for stuff other than Jesus. We're all victims to that. I'm the... There's some things that you can throw an ad my way that I could care less. But you throw some other stuff my way, and I'm like, oh, ooh, maybe I need to sell some things I have and get the next best one or the other one over there. And like, If you remember, and I know my family are all car, car people, um, the year that the S10 changed models in 1986, the S10 had stayed the same from about 70, late 70s and 85, and it had the very flat. And then in 86, they shifted it all to this more rounded. Like, ooh. But it took them like seven, eight years to make that model shift. It took them seven, eight years to do... Well, now it's every year it's something new. Every year, just to entice you to buy the next one. Every year, it's some new little gadget or something. So I thought I'd prove it to you. That Paul is telling Timothy to beware of this condition of contentment, and we are all subject to it. So, Dan, I have some audio for you. This is a commercial from the 50s, I believe. Maybe I hit it again. Oh. We have. Cole's going to fix that. I'm not going to play the whole thing because I think this commercial is two and a half minutes long. I just want to show you the difference of what uh, what it looked like. 
Got it? Okay. It's all of this world. Take a look at the new Ford 1950. It's 50 way new. And this is a new Ford engine. Fire the whiskers. Fire this means quality. That midship ride is like floating on air. Ford's the one fine car in a low price field. New fashion car style. Take the wheel of a new Ford and feel the difference. Ford's famous life car body has been made even stronger than ever. And Ford gives you more hip and shoulder room than any car in its class. Look at the color of the instrument panel. Feel those new sponge rubber front seat cushions. Only Ford in its field gives you a smooth 100 horsepower V8 engine. Or the most advanced since in the industry, if you prefer. It's a fine car at a low price. Yes, a new Ford out of this world is quality. That's why there's a Ford in your future. With a future built in. Each model comes out, there's something little tiny. So what Ford did, this is from years ago, what they did is they replaced with a camera and sensors and all these things, they replaced this. Right? But it's new. It's got a camera. When I change lanes, I don't have to think about driving. And we're all like that. The next phone, the next TV, the next thing, the next everything. Because we aren't content with what Christ has done. We're not content with what God has given. We aren't thankful enough. We're all susceptible to this. I'm not immune to this at all. Tonight, we'll watch the Super Bowl. Some of you will. I'll watch. And the commercials are worth millions upon millions of dollars to try to entice you. If you pay attention to what's happened over the last several years, it's not that these products and things out there are better, better made, better quality, it's that they'll make you feel better. They'll make you happier. There's nothing new under the sun. Paul was warning Timothy of what was happening in this church in Ephesus, that these false teachers were coming in making promises, and they were doing it for their own gain. They weren't content, and he's trying to tell this whole church, are you content with what the Lord has blessed you with? Are you content? Jesus tells us in Matthew, Chapter 6, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm not saying that we should all have a Live Simply t-shirt and a spork. But we probably should have a strive towards a proper, healthy disconnection with our stuff. 
that if you're going to do things and purchase things and have stuff, does it add to the family? Does it add to your ministry? Does it add to the memories? Like we're at that phase of our life with our kids and their teenage that everything we start talking about is, well, if we're going to do this vacation, if we're going to do, we got reasonings was we need like we don't have a whole lot of time with our kids before we're off in college we need to build some memories we need to build so i'm not saying that you can't have possessions i'm not saying that you shouldn't get a new car i'm not saying you shouldn't upgrade your house or build a new house. i'm not but where is your heart in it is it because you're chasing we say chasing the joneses but that's unfair to the joneses are you are you chasing the next thing because that is what fulfills you or is Christ fulfilling you? Your relationship with God fulfills you, and out of the outpouring of that confidence and your love of Christ, you you give, you make money, you do things, you build memories, you leave a legacy behind. Or is it just chasing the next thing because that helps you feel better about yourself? And if we're honest, it's probably a little bit of both in there, and we're all prone to it. We should pray for God to help relieve us of that. A couple things. We've got to focus on growing in our character as an outflow of the gospel. And I talk about this a lot with you all, and I've said it for years, that if you see your whole life as a place for Jesus to reign and rule, then you won't worry about the stuff. You'll, you'll make purchases. You'll build a beautiful, brand new home. And you'll invite people in. You'll bring the kids over. Have a... I mean, we, that's how you live your life. You've only got a limited amount of time. God's blessed you greatly. And so then you are a blessing to others. And it's okay to have some fun while doing it. But if you're just having fun, and you're not trying to be a blessing to others, then, I only heard half of what John said, you're out of balance. We've talked about missions in this church before. Some people in this church do not feel compelled to go onto the mission field. They do not feel compelled to do a short-term trip. They don't feel compelled that they want to leave the country. That's just not something that's in their heart. The Spirit has not released them and told them to do that. But somebody that has been given that freedom and that gift. And so there's people in this church that will write big checks to send others who have the time, the capacity, we have this beautiful partnership here where it's not just, a, but are you content in it? Are you content in Christ? If you're content, then you don't have to worry about all those decisions because you know why you're doing them. I had a, a guy, we served together in men's ministry in West Virginia, and he called me, and I, I just don't know what to do about it. and. I'm not, I just need some help. So I'm thinking it's like job change, something big, something. He's like, well, my wife and I have been, they're about to have a, a little girl. We've been researching cars, and um, they were going to buy a certain brand. It wasn't a Chevy, so I told him it was a bad decision to begin with. But, but then I drive a Nissan, too, so I can't say much. And premium German car. And they had done all this research. They had done all of this stuff. And they, his wife felt it was the safest vehicle. He's like, I just don't know as a leader of the church I should drive this brand. Because it's a really expensive car. And I just kind of looked at him, why are you thinking that way? Why are you, 
And they had saved for three years and they're paying cash for it. So why are you so worried about this? Well, I just don't want to drive in and people see that emblem and I'm a leader in the church and I don't. And so I walk through, like, are you, is this, are you buying this car because it makes you feel good about yourself? Not that, I mean, when you get a new car, it's kind of nice. I'm not, don't take, don't stretch that too far. On the front, and you think you're better than everybody else? Well, no, it's just a car. We did the research, it's the safest car on the road, and I'm getting, having a little kid. Okay, then buy the car. What are people in the church going to say? They're probably going to say, nice car. <laughs> we all know your heart. You serve your guts out in this church. You give sacrificially. You support two different missionaries at a level that no one else I know supports. Why are you worried about this so much? I just don't know if I just, I, he was totally crippled. So I talked him into getting the car, and then his wife thanked me for it. And he still to this day gives and gives and gives. The key isn't the money. It's that it can be the root of all evil because then you get selfish with it. You want it all for yourself, and then you don't understand what it's doing to you. John Wesley, the great Methodist pastor and missionary, um, he decided, and I'm, this was cool. I'd like to someday get to this. This would be cool. He decided to, as he got raises in ministry, he lived on the same amount of money that he always had. As he got raises, he just gave more away. So by the end of his life, the end of his ministry, he was making in today's dollars about $160,000 a year, and he was living on about 30000 And he just gave the rest away. Every raise he got... He didn't see it as a, an excuse to spend more money. He saw it as a way to continue to give. He had a meager lifestyle. He didn't need a lot, and he just gave tons away. If you remember the story of Rick Warren when he wrote Purpose Driven Life, he made a pile of money on that book. After he made all that money on that book, he began reverse tithing to the church. He lived on 10% and he gave 90% away because he was making a pile of cash. He didn't do that in the beginning of his ministry. He had a family to support. So, like there's, but he was, he was teaching contentment. He was content. He had everything he needed. He didn't need anything more. And so he supported and gave and gave and gave. So what a blessing that would be to live a life in such contentment that you're okay with the house that God's blessed you with, the car he's blessed you with, and you're not just constantly searching for more. And current practices, especially in our consumer country, our culture, really tap into this thing that Paul's talking to us all about. We're all prone to that. Oh, there's a new vest? I might have to look at that. If there's a new plaid? I mean, it's the same pattern. It makes them so much better. We're all prone to it. And so it's a warning for us all. That as we grow in our character, then we have to really fight for contentment. And I think the key is that we're sufficient in Christ's provision. We are not self-sufficient. That we live every day thankful for the breath we've been given, thankful for the places he's taken us, thankful for the people in our lives, and we're thankful for every moment we have with our families, with our friends, with our church family. And that kind of contentment builds a confidence in us. We're not just chasing things. Instead, we're living life with great relationships. We're trying to build into the kingdom. Because that eternity matters more than what you have here.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, add together in your word. And I pray, Lord, as we um, go out, maybe do some reflecting on the And are we prone to be pushed one way or the other um, because we don't feel fulfilled in our souls? Um, and that fulfillment can only be made complete by you. The gospel, the truth that you stepped out of heaven to die for our sin, that you love us more than we can imagine, that you took the weight of sin upon yourself so we didn't have to. Instead, we can walk in grace and mercy. And I pray, Lord, you'll help us um, to see all the people around us as image bearers of, of you, Lord, the need to know you so that they would have an eternity with you. If you look at all the statistics that are there's about at the minimum, and it's on the planet that are far from you. And our lives would be filled with great contentment if we were adding people to the kingdom of heaven with our testimony, with our lives, with our compassion, helping people to see the truth that you're everything. Help everything that we hear, the controversies around us, we run it through the lens of Scripture. We use the mind you've given us to think through those things and help our hearts to burst with a desire for others to know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.